Let's pray together. Oh God, you are our God and our eternal King. How then should we live? Please, Holy Father, let the teaching of Scripture this day not only engage our minds, but encourage our hearts. We would follow Jesus. In his name we wait on you. Amen. May I be blunt with us all. Have we lost? Have we lost a sense of sin? Is sin no longer hideous and repulsive to us? About three weeks ago, I read a most disturbing book. Title of the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ronald Sider. In the book, he shares some statistics that are both astounding and alarming. And I have to share those statistics with you. I need to warn you in advance of hearing these statistics. They may make you feel a bit uncomfortable. But I want you to look at a profile he has painted of the evangelical community. For example, according to the Christian pollster George Barna, born-again Christians, all right, that would be this audience, born-again Christians now share the same divorce rate as the national populace. 33% chance you'll be divorced. One out of three. According to two other sets of national data, compared to the rest of the population, get this, conservative Protestants are more likely to divorce. And one more. Barna has also found that 90% of all divorced, born-again Christians divorced after they accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What about sexual promiscuity among a community like ours? In March of 2004, researchers at Columbia and Yale universities reported on a 10-year study of Christian teenagers who participated in the national program. You've probably heard of it, True Love Can Wait. It's the Southern Baptist Convention's effort to reduce premarital sex among teenagers, among its young. Since 1993, 2.4 million Christian teenagers have signed the pledge, I will wait until I'm married to engage in sexual intercourse. So, they take 12,000 of these kids and they track them for seven years. And here's what they discovered. I'll put it on the screen. I'm quoting Cider now. Sadly, they found that 88% of these pledgers reported having sexual intercourse before marriage. Just 12% kept their promise. Christian evangelical teenagers. The researchers also found that the rates for having, listen to this, having sexually transmitted diseases were almost identical for the teenagers who took the pledges and those who did not, end quote. So I don't suppose we should be surprised when we compare another statistic, the national rate, 33% 
of Americans have lived with a member of the opposite sex before getting married. We shouldn't be surprised, I guess, that the rate for Christian evangelicals is not much lower. 25% of all Christians, evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, have lived with someone first. The scandal of the evangelical conscience. Sider also noted that racism. Just take white Christians in America, period. That of all Christians, and he starts with general nondescript Christians and Roman Catholics and then works his way up to mainline denominations and then turns a little more conservative and a little more conservative until he reaches the most conservative white American Christians. They're the ones that have the highest percentage of rejection rate. I do not want someone of another race to live next door to me. I reject that thought. Isn't that sad? Christians of all people, conservative Christians, physical abuse in marriage, they have, they have discovered that traditional marriages, i.e. the kind of marriages you and I engage in, traditional marriages have a higher physical abuse rate than egalitarian or just, you know, easy come, easy go kind of marriages. You want to talk about the poor and the conservative evangelicals' commitment to giving something to the poor? Tragic, sad statistics. And then Sider concludes, look at these words. To say there is a crisis of disobedience in the evangelical world today is to dangerously understate the problem. Gallup and Barna hand a survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit, bit as hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, materialistic, possession-accumulating, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. End quote. The scandal of the evangelical not mine, the evangelical conscience. And how is it today with the Adventist conscience? Hmm? Have we too lost our sense of sin? Is sin any longer hideous and repulsive to us? Is sin our master? Are we the slaves of sin? Open your Bible with me as we continue our journey together in the book of Romans. Open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 6. I told you those statistics would make us squirm a bit. Let's go to the Word of God where we don't have to squirm. We can listen with hope and confidence. Romans chapter 6. I'll be today in the New International Version. If you didn't bring a Bible when you came today and you'd like to follow along in a Bible, we have one in the pew rack in front of you. It's the New King James Version. If you go to page 760 in the New King James Version, you'll be right where we are. Romans chapter 6. I want to begin reading... In verse 5, Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with Him, that would be Christ, like this in His death. What is, what, what's He talking about? Like this. That means like what we were just talking about, which was baptism. If you've been baptized and you've been buried, dying and buried and raised in Christ. That's the point. If we have been united with Christ like this in His death... We will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. By the way, you have just read a very neat and tidy summation of the book of Romans. In fact, I wish you would jot this down. Take the, take the new study guide that's in your worship bulletin today, would you please? And ushers, thank you for getting a study guide to those who might have gotten in without getting a bulletin. Just hold your hand up and an usher will get that study guide to you. And those of you watching on television right now, let me give a website. I'll put it on the screen right here. www.pmchurch. That's our website. pmchurch.tv. 
If you click on to this particular series, it's called Wine and Milk, a series from the Book of Romans. Can't believe it, but this is already number 17, part 17. And today's uh, teaching is entitled, Repeat After Me, I Reckon I'm Dead. We'll find out what in the world that's about in just a moment. But uh, click on there and where it says study guide and you'll get the study guide. And so let's, let's uh, take our study guides now. And would you, would you note this neat and tidy summation of Romans? Got your study guide there. All right. The verse we just read. We remember we read, united with Christ in his death. That's a perfect summation of Romans chapters 1 through 5. 1 to 5. So put 1 to 5 there. What's going on in Romans chapters 1 through 5, which we've already finished? Ah, that's the great truth of justification. Justification. And what's justification? What God in Christ has done. Please use all capital letters. What God in Christ has done. All right? Romans 1 through 5. Now we're moving into chapter 6. You can jot it down. Romans 6 through 8. You could argue, I suppose, all the way to the end of the book. But Romans 6 through 8. Now we're going to deal with the truth, the great truth of sanctification. And what does sanctification mean? It's what you in Christ must do. Put that in all caps as well. Keep your pen moving. Get it down, please. The done of the everlasting gospel always precedes the do. Would you get that, please? You say, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. Watch this. When we concentrate on the done and forget the do, that's called cheap grace. They have a word for it. It's called antinomianism, which means just anti-law, which explains the tragic statistics we've just read. Christians say, hey, 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 I'm saved by grace. Hallelujah. Saved by Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live. That's when you concentrate on the done and forget the do. Now, I've got to warn you, the opposite error is equally deadly. Put it down, please. When we concentrate on the do and forget the done, what God has already done, that's called legalism and Phariseeism. Do this, do that, do the do, 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 do. And we forget, wait a minute, this isn't about me, this is about God. We forget. And we face that danger. But both extremes clearly are anathema, which is why Paul and the rest of the New Testament are extremely careful to always present the done before the do. Invariably, the done must precede the do, and invariably, the do will proceed out of the done. Are you thoroughly confused now? Done? All right, let's go on. Verse 5. We read verse 5 again, but I want, to, I want to run into this now. Watch this. Verse 5, Romans 6. If we have been united with Jesus like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. Now, here comes verse 6. For we know that our old self... And I like that in the New International. The King James says, old man. What's the old man? No, it's better. Old self. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin, that, that old solidarity with sin, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, verse 7. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Whoa! Paul shares a most intriguing illustration here. When a slave dies, finis, adios, it's, you, you are dead and gone. When a slave dies, how much authority... Does his master still hold over him? How much authority does the master have over a dead slave? Zero. Nada. Nothing. No authority. When you got... Paul's point is the former master can walk up 
to that corpse of a slave and give commands until he is blue in the face and the slave will never respond to his former master. Why? Because he's dead. There is a law. Once you're dead, you don't have to obey your former master. Can't do it. You're dead. And that, Paul is exclaiming, is precisely what has happened to you. Write this down, please. Dead slaves. Write it in. Dead slaves are freed from their former masters. Paul says, hey, when you got baptized into Jesus, that old body of death, that rotten, lost way of life you used to live, it got, it got buried. The old slave to sin kicked the bucket. Which means that the old taskmaster of sin no longer has the authority to give you a command. Because you're dead. Isn't that what he said here? Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Look at verse 7. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Once you're dead. You're supposed to leave your old master behind. Which, by the way, is why the sin statistics are so alarming. Apparently, we Christians, conservative Christians, have chosen to keep the corpse around. We'd rather live with that corpse. Keep it around just in case, you know. That's why it's so, so sad. I mean, we're like the... Did you hear about this this year? The Georgia crematorium, crematorium operator. You remember? Sentenced just this year to 12 years in prison. You know why? Because he, he scattered 334 bodies all over his property. And instead of burning them up, he sent cement powder to the, to the relatives saying, Here are the ashes of your deceased. Are we doing the same, living with the corpses surrounding us? The corpses of sin that should have been buried a long time ago? Hey, guys, what's the problem? Is sin no longer hideous? Is sin no longer repulsive to us? Have we gotten used to the corpse? By the way, that's the very issue that opens up Romans 6. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? Have we gotten used to the corpse? Shall we keep the corpse around? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2, by no means, God forbid, we die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 4, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You buried that corpse. Didn't I? That's what baptism is about. When you and I went under that watery grave, buried it. Why is the corpse still around? You're saying, hey, wait a minute, Dwight. What, what, hey, wait a minute, Pastor. What are you saying? Are you suggesting that once I'm baptized, I'm not going to sin anymore? Please. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. And by the way, neither is Paul. And the next time you and I are together, we'll be in chapter 7, which will clarify that crystal clear. No, no, no. It's not that you don't sin anymore. Paul's passionate point is, though, that the taskmaster of sin has already been conquered and defeated at Calvary. That's his point. Check it out. Pick it up in verse 8 here. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead. This is our Easter homily last week. For we know that Christ, when Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. 
Now verse 10. The death He died. Get this. The death He died. He died to sin once for all. Would you write that in quick in your study guide? The death He died on the cross. He died to sin once for all. I mean once for ever. One act. Wow. That was... You know what? Calvary was the most stupendous victory in the history of the entire universe. He died. He died. And he won in that death. I love the way one author puts it. And I I wish you would scribble this down. Speaking of the victory of Jesus right there in your study guide. Christ's victory on Calvary is a victory. I love this. That needs no second fight. Let's see, let's see. I didn't, didn't, was that not clear? Let's, let's, Let's do this one more time. No, 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 no. It needs no second fight. And I like this. It leaves no second foe. There's not another enemy we have to face. The one enemy that got beaten in that one, that one contest to the death. It's the only enemy we have. Got beaten at Calvary. Thank you, Jesus. What do you say? Got beaten at Calvary. Thank you, Jesus. What do you say? Amen. Got beaten. We recently, Karen and I watched uh, this new John video series. Have, have you seen these new videos? They're, they're beautiful on the Gospel of John, word for word. And who can forget that moment when Jesus comes back out of the wilderness? I mean, he's hardly over 30, Jesus. But he's been 40 days and 40 nights, as it were, in hand-to-hand combat with the archenemy of the universe. And he's, he's now successful. He's won for a while. And he comes down that shaly pathway, sunken cheeks, but a regal mane and bearing about him. Who can forget that moment when John, who's only six months, by the way, older than Jesus, in his early 30s as well, bushy-bearded prophet John, he nudges his young, the, the young guys that are following him and says, Hey, 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 look! As he, see, as he sees Jesus approach the edge of the crowd and pointing at Jesus, who can forget that moment when John cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God! which takes away the sin of the world. Oh my, that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. He takes away the sin of the world. Jesus became the Lamb to take away all the sin of all the world. Every sin you commit, every sin I commit, taken away. He takes away the sin of the world. And by the way, you remember this, don't you? That when they sinned in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, the repentant sinner would have to bring that fluffy little white lamb. Sometimes it was a goat. Innocent creature. Bring it to the gate of the, of the sanctuary. You remember that he would place his left hand on that innocent creature. And with his left hand, he would confess the heinous sin that now this innocent creature must die for. And after he was through confessing that sin, the priest would reach into his sash and he would pull out that sharpened dagger and he would hand it to the repentant sinner. And it was the task of that repentant sinner to pin the lamb down and with his own hand slit the throat, hold the lamb so that it won't run away, let it bleed to death. But while that hand is pinning That innocent creature, warm, coagulating blood drips all over the sinner. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did Paul put it? He died to sin once for all. Hey, hey, time out, time out. You know what, guys? I predict, I predict 
that if we had to sacrifice lambs, innocent creatures, for our besetting sins, some of us would think twice before going back to that corpse to make love. We would think twice. Please. Which is exactly what the Apostle is calling us to do. Pick it up here in verse 10. Read verse 10 again. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Now here comes verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul now quickly and dramatically shifts gears and places within our own hands and hearts a most compelling Two-pronged offensive strategy. You got a corpse in your life? Do you have sin that you're still struggling with? Of course you do. Here comes a two-pronged offensive strategy. Write it down. Offensive strategy, prong number one, attitude of the mind. Write it in, please. The first strategy is the attitude of the mind. Keep writing. Paul says, reckon. And by the way, the New King James, I like that better. Reckon or consider or count yourself dead. Write that in. Dead to sin and reckon yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. Ellie Maxwell in his book, Embracing the Cross. Listen to these words. You'll have to brood over these at another time, but I I think they're there in in the study guide for you. Let me read them out loud in your hearing. Have you longed and sighed to be Christ-like? Anybody here want to tell me, Dwight, I never have wanted to be like Jesus. Anybody here, I don't want, I've never wanted to be like Jesus. Of course not. We have all longed. We have sighed. Some of us have wept, realizing how tragically fall, far we fall short. Now, we all have. So, Maxwell asks, have you longed and sighed to be Christ-like? You said to the Lord Jesus in your heart, Oh, I do so want to be like you because you have done so much for me, but it seems as though I never can be good. Beloved, he goes on, begin at once to reckon, Romans 6.11, reckon upon your death, resurrection, position in Christ. Count by naked faith upon the fact of your union with Christ. In blind abandonment, as far as feelings are concerned, move out by a definite act of faith, trusting Christ to make real your life union with Him. Hold on. Sink your life into His and let Him be your life, your light, your victory, your all. One more line. Look at this. Let the glory of this vital union grip you and you can never be the same again. Take seriously Romans 6.11 and you'll never be the same again. Never, never, never. Reckon, consider, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And do it where? Right up here. Do it all in the mind. Right here. Right here. Do it here. Here's a simple prayer that you and I can pray. You see it there in your study? You can just keep this prayer with you. Oh, God. I feel the force and fury of of my temptations. But I remember that Jesus died to take away my sin. And because I died with Him and rose with Him in baptism, I remember the day of my baptism, God. I choose to reckon myself dead to sin, my sin. And I choose to reckon myself alive in You through Christ. Amen. There's no magic in the words. It's just praying Romans 6.11. God, I reckon it. I reckon myself dead 
Charles Wesley. Remember Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. In that, in that hymn of his, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, there's a, there's a stanza that goes, He broke the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He broke it, guys. He broke it. Your sin has already been defeated. You are not fighting a conquering foe. You are fighting a defeated foe who desperately does not want you to ever remember that he's been licked at Calvary. He will not let you remember that if he can help it. Why, therefore, this prayer is necessary. A hundred years ago, this is in the study guide. Listen to this. This act of the will. Through faith, irrespective of feeling, Jesus, the author of our salvation, the finisher of our faith, will by His precious grace strengthen the moral powers and the sinner may reckon himself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Here it goes. Simple faith with the love of Christ in the soul unites the believer to God. End quote. Hey, but wait, 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 hold it, hold it. Unless we would conclude that Paul's offensive strategy is just a mind game. I just can play a little mind game up here, a little bit of mental gymnastics. Nope. It's a two-pronged offensive strategy. Please get it down. Strategy prong number two. Let's, let's read here in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master. Write it down quick, please. Offensive strategy number two. If number one is the attitude of the mind, strategy number two is the action of the body. Keep writing. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Physical combat must be waged against sin. We are in a war and the enemy has to be driven out. It won't go away unless you drive it out. That six-pack has to be thrown out. Those cigarettes have to be tossed away. The pornography has to be destroyed. The internet or television has to be disconnected. The woman must be abandoned. The cheating has got to stop. The gossiping has to cease and desist. The refrigerator has to be emptied and not into your stomach. In case you were wondering. Why? Because, write it down please, it is not enough to have an attitude. You need to take an action. Take action. Keep writing. It is not enough to just say no. It is imperative you must also say go. Get out of here. Go, enemy. Corpse, I don't need you anymore. Go. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Ah, look at this desire of ages. You have it in your study guide. In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion, no external forces employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man and woman, we are left free to choose whom we will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. And now, mark this, the expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. God is too committed to your freedom. God loves you way, way, way too much. There's no way God's going to come in and say, Hey, hey, step aside. Let me just... What do you want to go to get this out of here? Quick, quick, get it. Take it, take it. No, he said, You know what? I'm not going to do that. You know why I'm not going to do it, God says? Because some, one day you're going to come whining and wailing to me. And you say, Why'd you take that away from me? I wanted it back. I'm not going to let you pin me with that, God says. You, 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 you know what I want. Now, I give you the freedom. You choose. You choose. It's your call. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the power. But you expel it. You take it to the door and give it the boot yourself. And that quotation goes on. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control. But when we desire to be set free from sin and in our great need cry out for a power out of and above ourselves, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. The expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. My dear friend, you and I need to ask for it. This is a, this is a, this is a, I'm preaching to Dwight right now. We have got to ask for it. God, I need that power. Give me the power and then let me, let me undertake the expulsion. By the way, that's why Paul declares right here in verse 14, you read it. Sin shall not be your master. Who then is our master? Oh, Paul ends with words that cannot be controverted. Drop down to verse 22. Take a look at this. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. There it is. Now that you have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You have become slaves to God. Why? Because, would you write it down? Life is always the choice between two masters. Masters, write it in. Not three. By the way, not four. Life is always a choice only between two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. Jesus is absolutely right in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. No woman, no man can serve two masters. No, 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 no. One master. You can serve. There are two choices. One master. Two slaveries. Some of you pride yourself in being, I'm very free and I'm very independent. You are not. You are a slave to someone. You only have two, two masters. You're, 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 you're a slave to one of them. There's not a third. Uh, life is simply a matter of choosing whom it is you obey. I tell you, that passion play last weekend, wasn't that something? Praise God for all of you who, who just, you, you, you rose to the occasion. Who can forget that moment when the rabble, the rabble screams, the, the rabble screams their taunting. You remember when they took Jesus to the cross and they cried out, we will not have this man rule over us. Never, never, never. The question is, because we have to make the same decision. Will we, you and I, have this man the one hanging on the cross, will we have Him rule over us? 
The answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. Will you have this man to be your master? Will you let him rule over you? That one on the cross. The final verse of chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The blind preacher George Matheson once wrote a series of anomalies so provocative, I'm telling you the truth, that when I read these when I was a teenager, I have never been able to get these out of my mind. And I'm going to put them on the screen. He, okay, so he's, he's taken Romans 6. Look what he does with it. These are anomalies. These are riddles. How does, how does this fit? Let's put it up. Make me a captive Lord, and then I shall be free. Now, does that make any sense? I mean, how can you be free if you're a captive? But that's what he's writing. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer or be. Time out. You don't give up your sword. You want, to, you want to be a conqueror, you keep the sword. No. Force me to render up my sword, and I, a conqueror, will be. Now, look at this. Here's another anomaly. My heart is weak and poor till it a master find. You've got to have a master. It has no spring of action, sure. You know what a spring of action is? Remember those old stopwatches? Remember they, they, they would have them hanging onto their, their, their uh, waist? It has a spring, a wound up spring. Uh, could you put the words back up? It has no spring of action, sure. It varies with the, wi- with, with the, with the wind. I used to read that, wind, 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 wind. Somebody came to me in between services and said, Dwight, you better start reading that again because that's really talking about a clock. And I never knew that. Put that back up there. I never realized that's talking about a clock. And you'll see in the next line that I show. Look at this. My heart is weak and poor to let a master find. It has no spring of action sure. There's not that wound up spring. It varies in the wind. Remember the old wind? You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? We used to, we used to have to do that. Seriously. All right, so it, it, it has no spring. It varies with the wine. Now watch this. It cannot freely move that clock in the hand of the master. It cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chain. That's the chain to the stopwatch. That's the chain that God says, I'm keeping you right here at my side, boy. You stay with me and you'll be just fine. You can't freely move until God gives you his chain. See the anomaly? You are actually free when you're chained. Enslave it with thy matchless love. And deathless, make me a slave, God, and deathless I shall reign. Isn't that beautiful? What an anomaly. That's the truth of Romans 6, the great anomaly of the everlasting gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, I beg of you, please join me with a prayer we've now been given. Let us remove the corpses and the power of the living Christ and find the new life that His blood has ushered us into. And so, God, we pray with all our hearts to You. Make us captives, Lord. Be the master. We'll be the slave. And then our hearts shall be free. Enchain us with Your matchless love. Oh, God, please. The life that Christ has called us to, we claim it by faith today and we reckon that it is ours too. And now to Him who is able to keep you from falling 
and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.